Well, hey, it's really good to be with you. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but Aaron actually is, uh, works with me as the uh, Associate Director of Church Planting, and so, uh, you know what, that's going to be just fine where it is. So uh, anyway, um, yeah, and so it's, I've had the joy of knowing he and Brandon for a long time, and, and, and uh, their families as well, and assessing them. Uh, to affirm their calling here. So it's just, it's just so fun to see how God's been faithful to raise up this just congregation of like-minded people. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're a guest here for the first time, uh, I can just wholeheartedly say, plug in, you're gonna, you won't regret it. So uh, anyway, but it's a joy to be here and to talk about one of my favorite subjects from the scripture, which is this idea that we all have this sense of calling and responsibility to participate in the Great Commission work of seeing congregations multiplied, right? It's planting new churches. And so we're going to be digging in. This will be like a master class in church planting from the Bible. So I'll try to make it as interesting and engaging as possible. Hopefully, uh, you'll all come away with a sense of conviction and clarity regarding the importance of this topic. And so we're going to be in Acts 19. And so if you have your Bible, you can kind of I'm just going to be camping out in this text, so you could, you know, keep it open right there at Acts 19, and, and in just a few minutes, we'll jump in and start reading some different sections as we work through the text. But uh, as we get started, I want to add a little context to the chapter. Uh, many times throughout this message, I'm going to talk about the historic pattern we saw in the early church, and uh, so I want to give you a few, few facts, a few fun facts about the Christian movement as it spread in the early days. Fact one is that the, uh, the early church was established and spread throughout Asia and the Middle East through the vehicle of two things, disciple-making and church planting. Okay, that was how Great Commission work happened. Fact two, um, the Apostle Paul, who we'll be looking at today, was one of the greatest Christian missionaries of all time, uh, credited in large part for much of this expansion. Okay, fact three, this was Paul's pattern. Uh, what he would do, and we see this in Acts, uh, is he would make disciples through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. He'd come into a city and do that. He would, he would form those disciples into a community called the church. He would establish leadership, appointing leaders in the church. And then he'd leave from that city and go somewhere else and do it again. And then that leads to fact four, that we believe in his lifetime, he planted a minimum of 14 churches uh, in his, throughout his ministry. And so it may, maybe even more than that, but we know of 14 for sure. So, in today's text, again, we're going to get a glimpse of how this happened more on a, on a micro level, okay? So we're going, to, we're going to look at the church in Ephesus and profile how it is that God worked through Paul to establish the church and what it looked like for that to happen as it multiplied throughout the region. So let me pray and just ask for the Lord's help in what we're about to do, and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here together, and uh, I know just from... Uh, five kids and grandkids that sometimes people are coming in, you know, to church with a lot of distractions and uh, it's challenging sometimes to, to tune in. Maybe some of us are going through some hard situations or whatever the case may be, Father. I just pray that your spirit might calm minds and hearts. And I pray the same for myself as well, that well, the things that I share today, that they might truly come from you, your word, and that I might just be a humble and, uh, and, and weak vessel, honestly. In, uh, in communicating those truths. So we just ask for your grace in that and your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, many of you are, have probably heard of the term cause and effect. It's a very kind of simple principle. You studied in elementary schools and even college philosophy classrooms. Um, at the basic level, cause and effect is this idea that a cause 
is something that starts emotion, right? It's the energy. And then the effect is the result of that motion or energy. And, uh, you know, when dealing with kids, we say things like actions lead to consequences. Now, the reason I bring this concept up uh, is that it's going to ultimately be seen in what it is we're looking at today. We're going to see this cause-effect relationship. And it's so clear, I think, in this passage that we're going to actually build, um, that's going to be how I structure this message, is that there's a clear cause and that it leads to a clear effect. And so that's the simple outline for today's message. And, and here's, the, here's what it's going to be. Cause is this. The cause is that the gospel of Jesus Christ took root in the hearts of the people of Ephesus. That's the cause. Effect is that disciples were made, churches were planted, and the culture of the city was changed. Okay? So that's the cause and effect relationship we're going to be looking at today. And so let's start with the cause. Gospel of Jesus Christ took root in the hearts of the people in Ephesus. And so you can follow along with me. I think the words will also be on the screen. Verses 1 through 7 of Acts 19. While Apollo was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Okay, so as we reflect on these verses, um, let me look at another one of Paul's patterns, okay, that's kind of interesting. Often when you read in Acts, he would enter a city, and he he would do something very similar. He would start by going to the synagogue or finding some Jews in the region. Um, he would then go to a public area and, and preach the gospel to the Gentiles after ministering to the Jews. And uh, I want to I clarify for you, just in case you're new to this whole church thing, what it was he was preaching. Okay, I'm going to refer to the gospel a lot throughout this, and you saw it referred to here earlier as well. But quite simply, um, it is this idea that Jesus came as God's son, and he came and lived a perfect life. And, and God sent him for this ultimate purpose, that he would go to the cross and die uh, for the sins of humanity, for the sins of you and me, so that all who put their faith in him, receiving his forgiveness and trusting that death, his death and resurrection by faith, that you might have new life in him. Okay, so it's this principle of forgiveness of sin, this principle of new life in him that uh, Paul was preaching. And so, uh, to the, to the question of why Paul started with the Jews, I think it's helpful to understand that, that I think uh, to Paul, one reason that he did that was because they were, they were like low-hanging fruit, you know, that you pick from a tree. Um, their background, their knowledge of Jewish history, it made it easier to transition into Christianity than the Gentiles. So it was a great starting point. And so we see in verse 2 and 3 that Paul asked some Jewish disciples of John the Baptist, you know, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their answer you know, Paul knew, he understood that, that it, was, it was John's baptism that they had had, which meant they had repented from sin. 
But upon hearing this, Paul recognized, man, that they had an incomplete understanding, right? And so he introduced them to the gospel, to this one who was following John the Baptist and, and invited them not only to repent, but also to turn to Jesus in faith. And so verse 5, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Verse 6, they received the Holy Spirit, which was con uh, uh, confirmed by tongues and prophecy. And then long story short, the gospel of Jesus became real to them in that moment, right? In the reality, it was confirmed in their baptism and in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what we've seen in these first seven verses is this cause, this causal relationship that will now lead to several effects. And uh, the cause was, again, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed, that many believed this gospel, and they had now become spirit-empowered disciples. And now it gets even, you know, really fun here in the story because we're going to see this effect lay out in just a few moments. Now, but before we get to there, I want to take a moment and just uh, draw your attention to a book. There, there was a book that was written by Steve Addison called Movements That Changed the World. And what he did is he, it's a really interesting little, very quick read book, you know. Uh, what he did is he studied five major movements throughout history. And what he was doing when he studied those movements is he was looking for common factors. What was it that happened in those just culture-changing movements that really changed the face of the world. And what he found is that the first common factor in all of those explosive movements was what he called white-hot faith, okay, meaning really hot faith. Uh, it was driven by this extremely passionate faith. And this is what he writes. He says, passionate faith is at the heart of the movement. It is the greatest resource and often the only resource and that when this passionate faith takes hold, people are more likely to believe that what they read in the Gospels is happening in their midst. You have this sense of affinity with our history in the Christian movement. They believe the world of the apostles is a present reality. And, and Addison goes on to explain that in the wake of this kind of passionate, gospel-infused faith, movements are rooted and movements grow. Now, I think his observations line up not only with Christian history, but also what we're observing here in Acts 19, okay? Obviously, it, it was the apostles seeing this happen, but it was also this timeless message of the gospel taking root. And so here's, here's what we can conclude, and this is really important, uh, an important conviction I think you all should embrace, and that is that the fire for mission, the fire for Multiplication is not a great strategy, but a great faith, okay? We can't mess this up. The secret sauce uh, for mission expansion, it's not methodology, but it's meditation on the wonder and awe of the God of the gospel who saved us, okay? That's the secret sauce, all right? Um, and this is why I know... Uh, knowing the leaders here um, at River City Church, this is why the gospel is central. This is why it's foundational. And so I just want to read a, a short quote. This is one of my favorite quotes from Paul Tripp's book, Dangerous Calling, because it just articulates this principle really well, and then we'll apply it and continue forward. But here's what he says about this concept of living in awe of this God of the gospel, okay, and the importance of it for our lives. Awe of God must dominate my ministry. Because one of the central missional gifts of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to give people back their awe for God. 
A human being who is not living in a functional awe of God is profoundly disadvantaged human being. He is off the rails, trying to propel the train of his life in a meadow, and he may not even know it. The spiritual danger here is that when awe of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by awe of ourselves. If you're not living for God, the only alternative is to live for yourself. So a central ministry of the church must be to do anything it can to be used of God to turn back people to the one thing for which they were created, to live in a sturdy, joyful, faithful awe of God. And so... The first application question today, I want you each to think about, literally think about this in your mind. How are you doing at living in the awe, at living in awe of the God who saved you? Like that, I'm telling you, that's the foundational reality that will empower effectiveness and fruitfulness for the kingdom. And, and as we'll see in a moment, awe is the first step in missional expansion. And, and so we've seen in Acts 9, 1 through 7, the cause of what's about to happen gospel takes root in the hearts of the people. And then there's three effects, okay? Now we'll jump into the effects. The first is disciples were made, the second churches were planted, and the third, the culture was changed. So let's look at um, verses 11 through 20. So we jump into the first effect where disciples were made. Starting at verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then... The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Wow, crazy. Uh, verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay. So to understand overall what's going on here, uh, you need to understand that Ephesus was a city that was filled with mystical, magical, spiritual things. Okay, It was known for its spirituality. And the temple to the goddess of Artemis was located there. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, so magic and spiritualism was to uh, Ephesus as gambling and showgirls is to Las Vegas, okay? So it's this kind of, this kind of feel uh, to it. it was in, and so it was in the middle of this heightened, spiritualized, touristy culture that God worked through Paul in equally miraculous and spiritual ways, right? We saw, I mean, we see handkerchiefs, healing. We see the sons of Sceva being beat up. Like, I mean, there were crazy miraculous things. And so God was using the spiritualized language of the culture. 
And so through the beating of the sons of Sceva, in essence, what he was doing is he was, he was beating the Ephesians at their own game, their own mysticism. And, and so to review what happened, more and more believers embraced the gospel of Jesus, right? We hear that, like it, it gripped the people. It's, the message of the gospel spread, and disciples were made, and disciples made disciples, and disciples made more disciples, and then what happened, so what happened, verse 18, many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So what, what's happening here? Um, well, I think the application for us isn't that you need to necessarily go home and burn your books or delete your Spotify list, okay? I think that might be uh, over, over, over reading this in some ways. But the point here is that the gospel of Jesus became the hope of the people, right? It challenged where it is that they had previously put hope, those idols of the culture. And so, you know, they were no longer turning to those things for their hope. They became followers of Jesus. They didn't need that stuff anymore. And so burning their magical books was kind of like, you know, breaking off a destructive pattern in their life that was competing with God. And so what happened in verse 20 is that lives began to be transformed as they became disciples of Christ. Verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so more and more disciples were made. That's what we're seeing. An explosive disciple-making movement emerged. They gave up false loves, and their commitment to Christ grew. Okay, this leads to effect two. Churches were planted. Churches were planted. Now, you may ask the question, you'd be right to do so, where do I get the idea that churches were planted from this text? Um, though it's not explicitly stated, we see this happening in verse 10, okay? Over the two years of the gospel being established in Ephesus, quote, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, we learn from other biblical texts, Revelation 2 and 3 and Colossians 4.13, that at least eight churches were planted out of this season of ministry in Ephesus. And so back to verse 10, when Paul states that the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord, we know he was likely referring to this idea that churches had been established throughout the region. Now, what's helpful to understand in Paul's writings is he would often make statements about his work like it was finished, like my you know, work is complete. As we saw in verse 10, the entire region had heard the word of the Lord. Now, when we look at these statements through a historic lens, we know what Paul meant is, is that there was this suggested completion, but it, but it referred to the successful establishing of churches in major population centers. So his assumption was that there would be these regional churches that would continue to make disciples and continue to plant churches. Now, in the book, The Church on Mission, which is a great little book uh, kind of going through our mission statement of the, of the EFCA, um, there's this quote by James Dunn. I just want to read it for you related to this concept of how churches were planted through the Apostle Paul. Um, the basis of a more detailed strategy is clear. With Paul focusing his work in large cities and probably using these centers for a more extended regional outreach through various fellow workers, Paul's vision could then be likened to lighting a series of candles in intervals in a curve around the northeastern quadrant of the Mediterranean, having lit them and ensured that the flame was strong, he left it to others to widen the pool of light 
while he went on to light more and further discrete centers of influence. This must have been a calculated policy on Paul's part, judged by him to be the most effective way of carrying the message of the gospel as far as he could to the Gentile world. So, to review, the historic pattern of Paul's missionary journey started with a cause, right? Gospel changed hearts. Led to an effect, disciples were made and churches were planted, blanketing entire regions with multiplying churches who would continue to move the mission of disciple-making and church planting forward throughout their cities and throughout their regions, okay? And this led to the third effect. The culture was changed. And so let's look at these, uh, this last section of verses, verses 23 through 27. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way, referring to the Christian uh, movement. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades and said, Men, you know we received a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He said that, um, that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Um, so what's helpful to know, uh, get a little basis for this section, is that Ephesus was a port city. And its economy was fragile because the port that it was located on was slowly filling in with silt, meaning ships could no longer come in. And so, like, literally, the tourism industry was, like, holding this city up, all right? And the tourism industry was due to the Temple of Artemis. And so how shrines and idols, they were a large part of the people's income. And so, as verse 26 mentioned, the problem was that Paul had convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. The result was, of course, the gospel took root, and the economy crashed. All right? And, and we know why. Again, it's people were abandoning their false gods, and, and this was the natural result. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's a pretty cool example of gospel transformation, and it is. But when you think about Dubuque, like, not a great strategy, right? Wrecking the economy of Dubuque. Maybe wouldn't be cool. It wouldn't be welcomed or appreciated. Um, and so that's not a really good direct example necessarily for us today. But there, there, is a, there is a story in Scripture, an example of this, that might ring a little closer to today's context. And so let me just summarize it briefly. Um, there's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark from the University of Washington. And he wrote a book attempting to answer the question, how did Christianity change the world? and it's called The Rise of Christianity, where he studied the Christian movement from the perspective of a sociologist. And it's a pretty interesting read. In chapter 7, he narrows his study in on the church in Antioch, which we can learn about back in Acts 11. Now, in that city, it was founded in the 4th century, and it was laid out in two sections, okay? So on one side were the Syrians, and the other side were the Greeks, and it was kind of like Germany. Those of you who are old enough to remember the wall in Germany, okay? Separating two different sides. This is how it was in that city. 
And so that was how they kept the peace between these two warring factions, right, who, who had these divisions related to race and culture. And so it was in, in this city divided by racial tensions that this wall kind of kept the peace. And then we learn later, okay, the Roman Empire took hold, and now it, this became an even increasingly international city. There were 18 different ethnic groups living in this city. And, and, and there was rioting, okay? So does this sound familiar at all? Like, right? There was rioting over racial tensions in the city, and it was a mess. Um, but what we learn and what Rodney Stark highlights, both from historic records, also what we see in Scripture is this. Um, in Acts 11, right, the gospel was established in Antioch. Okay, so the gospel of Jesus Christ was embraced. And this small con converted group of Jews grew. And they became a multi-ethnic, multicultural, thriving gospel preaching and proclaiming church of Jews, Africans, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, Asians, etc., etc. And so the gospel took root in a city, and what happened? Racial division ended in that community. And what emerged was a, a community of faith where racial differences were set aside. Those who were once enemies now found love and unity in Jesus. And according to Stark, the Greco-Romans of that day they stood in awe as they saw a people who once hated each other now doing life together in the name of Jesus. So I think you can see the point. Like the gospel transforms people. The gospel transforms community. And in a culture, I don't know, I don't know what the prominent issues you're feeling here in Dubuque are, but as a culture, broadly speaking, experiencing a great deal of division, a great deal of anxiety, there is no greater opportunity for us than to embrace the gospel of Jesus and to show to all the world how it is that that gospel alone is capable of uniting people in love and in unity. Now, so let's move into the application, the full application here. First of all, I want to invite you to consider answering this question. How is the gospel challenging the idols of Dubuque, whatever those idols may be? How is God using you individually, and maybe as a church community as well, of course, to bring transformation to this city? More broadly, how is God leading you to make disciples, plant churches for the purpose of seeing the transforming power of the gospel spread throughout this region? Now, I'm going to land the plane on this message just answering three questions very briefly. These are kind of common FAQ-type questions that, that I get in my position and in my work with church multiplication. And uh, the first one is this. Do we really need more churches? Okay, so let's jump in on that one. Now, one way to answer this question uh, locally is this. The city of Dubuque, my understanding is what I read, at least. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it has about around 66,000 people. Okay? Now, what we know in North America is that almost no city has more than 10% of its people connected to a gospel-preaching church. So I'm just going to use the highest level there, okay? 10% of people connected to a gospel-preaching church. So assuming Dubuque holds that statistic, what that means is that over 50,000 people, 50,000 in this city are not engaged by a gospel-preaching church. Now, if we expand that region... 
to include a 20-mile radius, so I have a program that kind of helped me do this 20-mile radius of the demographics, that population increases to 130,000, which kind of surprised me, to be honest. That's a lot of people. Now, if we apply the statistics there, that means that 117,000 people are not engaged by a gospel witness. So to think about the question, do we need more churches in the regions in which we live? I think the answer is clearly yes. If the churches we plant, I do want to qualify this way, though. If the churches we plant are only shuffling the 10%, then no, we don't need those churches, right? But if our plants are focused on reaching those who are not walking with Jesus, then even 10 new churches, even 20 new churches, wouldn't really scratch the surface on the need. So we do need more churches. Second question, will our church be hurt by sending leaders and resources to plant a new church? Uh, the common objection is this. Won't, won't sending out some of our best and won't sending out some of our people and won't giving of our finances somehow hurt our growth, somehow hurt the mother church? Well, I can tell you with confidence that statistics have shown the opposite. There was a guy by the name of Jeff, Jeffrey Farmers, a PhD. He wrote his dissertation in uh, 2007 by following 300 churches that had sponsored plants. Okay, these are churches that had made a commitment to financially or otherwise supporting these church plants. What he found is that all, literally, like all of them flourished in the wake of their commitment. In these churches, in the first five years, after beginning a planting sponsorship, worship attendance increased 22%. Financial giving increased 48%, and designations towards areas such as foreign missions increased 77%. That was the hard data. And so the truth of these statistics is that churches literally gain by losing. That sending actually invigorates growth, not only for the sender, but those who are sent. So the reality is that God brings flourishing to churches that are missionally effective and progressive. And so that leads to the final question. What does the call to plant churches mean for River City Church? Now, it's probably better answered by Aaron and Brandon, and so as well as some others perhaps in this church. So I'll, I'll let them specifically. You can nail them down later. Um, but I do know this, that healthy churches multiply at every level. Healthy churches Focus on multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, multiplying small groups, and multiplying churches. And so my encouragement is to continue living out the DNA that Becky talked about just a bit ago. Live out that DNA. And as you do so, as you, make God, as you grow in the gospel, make disciples and plant churches, um, prepare. What is that going to mean for me? God may call you to join a core team, Right? to plant a new church. God may call you to contribute financially in a sacrificial way. God may call you to uh, become a planting resident here, right, and grow in that vision. Whatever the case, this, this is kind of my closing challenge, whatever the case, the one option you do not have is not to care, okay? The call for disciple-making and church planting should be a shared passion for all who love Jesus, and so I want to close just with this quote by a guy by the name of Jeff Metters. How did Paul help Corinth? He planted a church. The city of Thessalonica, another church plant. 
Did Paul mix it up in Ephesus? Maybe a wrestling gym with a crucifixion theme? Of course not. He planted a church. The planning of gospel-centered churches filled with gospel-centered people who live as grace-leaking missional monsters as light in the darkness, inviting the dead to come to life in Jesus Christ and to dwell in the kingdom of God, that is the hope of your city and mine. Our cities don't need more shows. The movies, theaters, and stadiums have that covered. Our cities don't need more planning of services but they do need the missional going of Christians, our disciple-making, our witnessing, and our church planting. We have the power of God that makes demon shudders, that, that sets captives free, that can save a thief on the cross, that can comfort a prostitute, that can redeem a drunk, that can restore a religious hypocrite, that can fulfill all we're looking for, made for, that power, that word, that name, that person is Jesus. That is the number one mission strategy of the New Testament. Nothing has changed since Acts 28. We cannot improve on what Dr. Luke has chronicled, and for us to put more weight behind any other strategy might be the most idiotic thing we could do. This strategy is old, normal, and completely supernatural. And maybe, just maybe, one day we'll hear, Acts 8.8, there is much joy in that city. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this journey in Acts 19 and uh, this journey uh, throughout the topic of church planting and the importance of that for your church. I pray, Father, that none of us would leave this time with a weight of undue or unrealistic or burdensome conviction, but that we might have a conviction that is purely rooted in the fact that we just love you. And we just want to be a light for all the world to see your goodness and your glory. And so, Father, uh, light a fire within us that just flows from how it is you've transformed us and help uh, River City to be the, uh, the, the kind of church that truly sees the transformation we dream and we pray for. And we're just going to trust you for that fruit. And, uh, and uh, just uh, I join them in the excitement for how it is you're going to continue to see that mission fulfilled here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.